During these last few weeks together, as you are aware, uh, we have been exploring these chapters and numbers which tell a story of a man named Balaam. He's not the only character, but he is a key character in these chapters. Numbers 22 through 24. Uh, This is a, a united story, these three chapters form. And it's about this non-Israelite pagan prophet named Balaam. And he's brought to Moab because a king there named Balak fears the presence of the Israelites nearby. He summons Balaam to curse them. This is going to be part of his strategy to defeat them. He thought that if the price was right, the seer from the east would come and make negative pronouncements over the Israelites. And then those people would weaken to the point where Balak could defeat them easily. But when Balaam travels west and arrives in Moab, Balak takes him to a location where he can see some of the Israelite encampments from a distance. Altars are built, sacrifices of rams and bulls are offered, and Balaam returns with a word from the Lord. The first oracle found in chapter 23, verses 7 to 10. It's not a long oracle, but in it, Balaam admits he cannot curse whom God has not cursed. Balaam says that the Israelites are so many that counting them is like trying to count dust. And who can do that? Well, the first oracle pronounces that Israel is not cursed. And King Balak wants to reset the whole exercise. Maybe the problem was the location. They moved to another spot in chapter 23, 13. Balaam can see a smaller fraction of the Israelites from a distance. New altars are built. Fresh sacrifices are offered of rams and bulls. Balaam is to provide the pronouncement next. The second oracle Shows a progression from the first. In the second oracle we learn that God will not change his mind about what he pronounced over Israel. His mind toward the Israelites is blessing. He had pronounced blessing on the family of Abraham. And he will fulfill everything he has spoken. He's not like a man who would speak one thing and do another, Balaam says. And then Balaam confesses his own inability to revoke what God has decreed. There is no enchantment that would work against Israel. No pronouncement Balaam could make that would overturn the divine plan for the people who were heading toward the promised land. Not only do the Israelites have the blessing of the Lord, the Israelites have the presence of the Lord. God had redeemed them from Egypt, Balaam says. And now he's with them. He's with them as their king. Because of his presence and power, the Israelites are like a lion. They're less prey and more predator. They're like a lion ready to rise and overcome the enemies of Yahweh. Now, King Balak at that point is exasperated by the turn of events. Balak has shown up for work and is underperforming, to say the least, in his judgment. Beginning in chapter 23, 27, we see the unrelenting, persevering desires of Balak. You might think, all right, strike one, strike two. Is Balak really going to keep going? Yes. But Balak believes in three strikes and then you're out. So that's what's happening here. He gets, Balaam's going to get one more opportunity and then he's gone, he thinks. In verses 27 to 30, the preparation of altars and sacrifices are given. Balak says to Balaam, come now. I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. The personal offense that Balaam has comes out in the very individual language here that you would curse them for me. Moab would benefit, Balak thinks, by a curse upon the Israelites. And yet Balak believes that he himself as the king, having summoned Balaam, having offered to pay Balaam, such extravagant blank check situation here, you you have Balak here saying, perhaps it will please God then that you will curse them from this location. I'll take you to another place. 
And the king is not being subtle about what he wants. He is pleading with, urging, and even feeling exasperated that it's not resulting in cursed language. Verse 28, Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. This is probably a nearby location. I don't think they're traveling many miles between these locations. They are uh, looking in a, uh, in a place, however, that could overlook Israelite encampments at a distance. In fact, Israel will later be at a place called Beth Peor. In Deuteronomy 3 and Deuteronomy 4, that place is referred to. Moses will be buried in this location, according to Deuteronomy 34. So it's an important place in chapters to come. But in verse 29, here's what we read. This familiar instruction. Build for me, Balaam says, seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Each of the oracles previously, oracle one, oracle two, all were preceded by altars and sacrifices. The same thing here. Balak does, as Balaam had said in verse 30, he offers the sacrifices. So the preparation is made. But now, now what I want us to notice as a reader is something different is going to be said. In Oracle 1 and in Oracle 2, right before they were given, Balaam had separated from King Balak and had returned with a word from God. But it says here in chapter 24:1 something different will happen before the third pronouncement. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. Now, how did he see that? This is a summary way of saying his experience with Oracle 1 and Oracle 2. In other words, it's become clear to Balaam's understanding that this is the case. He has now seen that the pleasure of God is not in the cursing of Israel, but the blessing of Israel. That's what Balaam sees. It pleases the Lord to bless Israel. So in this case, he didn't go as at other times to look for omens. When would he have done that at other times? It's not said explicitly before the first and second oracles. But I think because of this language, we can imply it. We can imply that part of what he would do is try to divine through some means of looking at animal entrails or charts in the sky. Some kind of thing that in the ancient world was occultic, astrological, and even something that was organ related within an animal. Balak is standing by the altar. Balaam doesn't leave him as he had done at other times. It says he did not go. To look for omens. But he set his face toward the wilderness. And in verse 2 he lifted up his eyes. And saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. What's the view like here? Well before the first oracle. There was a substantial portion of it. Basically a quarter of the people. Before oracle 2. Balaam scared the, uh, Balak had it scaled back. He only had a slimmer of the people. From the, the vantage point they were on. In spot number 2. But in this case. This third location, he sees Israel camping tribe by tribe. It's as if he has the largest scope of the view. A panorama of Israel's dwelling right there near the land of Moab. Balaam lifts his eyes and he sees them. These people whom the Lord has been pleased to bless and not to curse. And then we're told in verse 2 something else. The Spirit of God came upon him. That's not been the language we've seen before the first oracle or before the second. This is a a kind of language that you see happening with prophets in the Old Testament that God would speak through. That the Spirit of God would come upon them. We wouldn't want to read this and say, well, Balaam must therefore be a believer. The Spirit of God even sovereignly used King Saul by coming upon Saul for specific purposes. Balaam is not a follower of Yahweh who fears the Lord and loves the truth of God. 
But the Spirit of God comes upon this pagan prophet that the words he pronounces next might be known to be true. The Spirit of God came upon him. So the reader can see here that this is divine insight that Balaam continues to give. Given by the very Holy Spirit who inspires the words of God we read. Balaam took up his discourse once more. Which means he took a deep breath and here we go ready to pronounce it. And he begins by talking about his own identity. Prior to this, with Oracle 1 and 2, he began talking about the king of Moab, King Balak. But here he's talking about himself as a prophet. Verses 3 through 9 is this third oracle. And it begins with saying the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor. Well, we know that lineage from Numbers 22. That's who his father is. Balaam is the son of Beor. But the second line is still talking about Balaam. We've seen that in prophetic and poetic texts in the Hebrew Bible, we see parallelisms to notice. So this second line, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, that's about Balaam also. He's the man whose eye is open. And we don't mean his physical eye. There is a a way of talking about those supposed prophets of the ancient Near East that they were considered to be a seer. Somebody who could perceive things about the present and future that people would pay them to pronounce. And Balaam is a man whose eye is open. It's talking about spiritual understanding and insight. Now, Balaam's eye or his understanding is opened by whom? Well, the Spirit of God has come upon Balaam. The Lord has delighted and been pleased to open up Balaam's understanding, which was not something natural to that prophet. In verse 4, the oracle is of him who hears the words of God. Still Balaam. It's all the same figure. He's going to give an oracle or a pronouncement from Yahweh. He's the one who hears God's words. So he has a special kind of seeing and hearing. He has the ears to hear and the eyes to see, to really hear and to really see what he's about to share. Vision of the Almighty. In other words, what he is going to do is a response He's going to pronounce something in response to what God has disclosed to him in this visionary experience. Balaam describes himself at the very end of verse 4 as falling down with his eyes uncovered. Which still means, I think, his spiritual perception. He can see, but the posture of falling down is a posture of submission. In other words, just because Balaam has the ears to hear and eyes to see in this moment doesn't mean he's superior. It means he is submissive. It means he is before the Lord. He is falling down with his eyes opened, if you will, the eyes to see and proclaim. And in verses 5 and following, he begins to talk about Israel. And none of this is what Balak would want to hear. Everything that we're about to read is the absolute opposite of what King Balak of Moab would want to hear. He's looking out over the Israelites, right? He's got the encamped Israelites before him, tribe by tribe. And he begins to say of them in verse 5, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. Those lines are also parallel because Jacob and Israel, these were ways of referring with the word Jacob as a shorthand way of of referencing the whole nation. Jacob as a patriarch in Genesis was renamed Israel. Therefore, he could speak of the Israelite nation as a collective Jacob in the singular. And here he says, your your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, they are lovely. They're ordered, encampment around each of the four sides of the tabernacle. The Israelites there are in an encampment that has been ordered and designed by the very instruction of God himself. 
And the activity there with the tabernacle in the middle, Balaam looks out over the tribe-by-tribe arrangement, and he says, this is lovely. That doesn't sound like curse language starting off, does it? And Balak is just sweating, you know. He's like, oh my goodness, what is happening here? And then he begins to speak in verses 6 and following with language that evokes images of flourishing. The images that Balaam is now going to compare Israel with. Their tents are lovely. And somebody might say, Balaam, lovely like what? Give me a picture. And Balaam says, like palm groves that stretch afar. Indeed, that would be lovely to see. Like gardens beside a river. Oh, how luscious that picture is. Like aloes that the Lord has planted. Well, how pleasant that would be to notice. Like cedar trees beside the waters. Well, how strong and fertile that picture is. So this image of uh, palm groves that stretch afar, gardens beside a river, cedar trees beside waters. This is picturing streams and waters, supply of nourishment and fertility and blessing and strength and growth. The image of flourishing is the exact opposite of what Balak would want. He would want to envision a people that are absolutely diminishing. That are shrinking in strength. That are weakening moment by moment. That are shriveling to where their power and their might are as nothing before the Moabites. And that is not any of the language you see here. The imagery communicates a desirable beauty and strength. And he says, that's what I see when I see Israelites. I see their encampments. I see this people whom God has blessed. And I begin to compare it with this luscious language. People have noticed over the years that the beginning of luscious language about uh, trees and beauty and plants and rivers originates in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 2 with the Garden of Eden. And here you have a prophet named Balaam who has come traveling from the east and he has come to this place of Moab to pronounce a curse over these people as Balak has paid him, and yet only blessing will proceed from his mouth. In fact, when he sees this people, he begins to compare them with Eden-like language. They are a garden-like people. They are a blessed and flourishing people. Look at their fertility and their life. He says in verse 7, water shall flow from his buckets. This could be a an allusion to an ancient practice to irrigate things by having some sort of shaft over one's shoulders with buckets on either side. You can see this in present days of people trying to carry uh, particular buckets of water in countries of the world to places where that water is needed. And this is not a recent practice. But an ancient one where water in buckets was going to be uh, brought. And it says water shall flow from his buckets. It's a way of saying an endless supply Of what you need. Life giving water. Bucket after bucket of it. The water is just flowing. In the ancient world. To come across living water. To come across an abundant supply. And provision of water. Was striking gold. I mean it was what you needed in the ancient world. For your civilization. Your tribes and people. All of the multiplying of your villages. You needed access to it. And here this image of vitality. And fountain of water if you will. Is being associated with the Israelites. Then it says his seed shall be in many waters. Which may talk about uh, the waters and seed of plants. That picture more growth in and beside rivers. 
It's also possible that multiple waters and the, uh, the use of the language of seed could have a play on something that's not just agricultural, but people-oriented. That the, the seed of Abraham was not ultimately about a particular plant, but the seed of Abraham was about a lineage, about a multitude of offspring. This could be affirming that same thing, that when he sees the Israelites, he's comparing them to a multiplying and life-giving and blessed people. And this imagery supplies what, what Balaam is, uh, is needing to communicate. Not only are these people multiplying and look like life bursting forth, it speaks about Israel having a king. Well, hold that thought for a moment. That's not been something mentioned in Oracle 1 or in Oracle 2, as his king shall be greater than Agag, even though it talks about Israel having a king, Yahweh, among them. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. It talks about the Israelites and the kingdom of God. The king shall be higher than Agag. Agag was a king of the Amalekites. And uh, sometimes future kings of uh, a particular people receive the same kind of name. It would be like a dynastic name. Similar to the way the word Pharaoh can work. Here's another Pharaoh. And of course there might be a more specific name. But that, can, that name could eventually function like a title to cover multiple people. And here this Agag seems to be both initially a personal name. But also a kind of title like the word Pharaoh that works for the Amalekites. The king of Israel shall be higher than that king. His kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, shall be exalted. God has brought them out to be a kingdom of priests, we're told in Exodus 19. And God's promises will be fulfilled. That's what Balaam sees. He sees a prosperous, life-giving future. He sees kingdom. He sees Yahweh's king in their midst. He sees the supremacy of the rule of God in the people of God. This is what Balaam sees. None of this is good news for Balak. He wants the Moabites to defeat the Israelites. And yet the greatness of the Israelites and the kingdom of God is what's being affirmed. This must have been horrifying to hear. Now, of course, we learn from earlier in Genesis that the line of Abraham would have kings that come from it. I think Numbers 24, 7 picks up on this as well. In Genesis 17, God told Abraham in verse 6, I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Genesis 17, 16, Abraham says to Sarah, I will give you a son by her. He says to Abraham about Sarah, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. Kings of people shall come from her. He told Jacob in Genesis 35, 11, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. Both Abraham and the patriarchs as a whole receive promises that something more than just saying, well, God who delivered us from Egypt is king over us. They would have a line of kings. They would have a hope for one who would reign and have a kingdom. And we have to put that to the side for just a moment because this is going to be crucial as we think about the last oracle next Sunday morning. Uh, but at the same time, this hope is being stirred and nurtured by the biblical authors. This verse anticipates victory. The king shall be greater than Agag, verse 7 says. Kingdom shall be exalted, verse 7 says. In verse 8, God brings him out of Egypt. This seems to still be talking about Israel as a collective singular, like Jacob was used earlier to talk about the Israelites. 
But at the same time, we will see that the king of Israel will himself be an Israelite, a consummate Israelite. He will be Israel from Israel. He will be someone who is a descendant of Jacob and someone who is an individual son. We're told here in verse 8, God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. This is language from the second oracle. Verse 8 reminds us of chapter 23, verse 22. We were told in the second oracle, God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. That is Exodus imagery. He brings them out. God's might, his hand. How do we know? Do we have any basis for that their king will be greater than Agag and their kingdom exalted in the earth? Well, we have we have the story of Egypt to remember. We can remember how they as Israelites were subjected to Egyptian captivity and God with his mighty hand and outstretched arm delivered them. He's the God of the Exodus. He's the God who redeems them. And therefore, the enemies of Yahweh should not be confident in their plots, but should tremble in fear before God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He is for his people like the horns of the wild ox. You don't want to be on the receiving end of the horns of the wild ox. The horns of the wild ox are deadly and threatening. And God here is someone who is not, should not be taken lightly by the Israelite enemies. Instead, he is for his people, like the horns of a wild ox, to defend them and to lead them and to fight for them. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. Now, are we talking here at the end of verse 8 about God or about the Israelites as a Jacob singular? Is he, in other words, talking about Israel out of Egypt? Because God says, or it says here, God brings him out of Egypt. Is then he, the one who is brought from Egypt, the one who will eat up the nations? I don't think ultimately we have to choose between them. Because God's victory is accomplished through the Israelite conquest and the inheritance of the land. As the nations fall by the power of God and through his people. His adversaries cannot overcome him. Their bones being broken and their bodies being pierced with arrows are images of defeat. And when you read in the book of Joshua... The Israelites are involved in conquest. And you also see the power and supremacy of Yahweh. So the victory will ultimately belong to the Lord. The eating, the breaking bones, the piercing with arrows. Images of the enemy's defeat. He crouched. He lay down like a lion and a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Now we've seen this language before as well. In chapter 23, it tells us in verse 24, as a lioness it rises up and as a lion it lifts itself. Who was the lion or lioness in the second oracle? Israel was. Here in chapter 24, 9, perhaps Israel is again in view, crouching and laying down like a lion and a lioness. Who will rouse Israel is a question to say, who is it that will provoke the work and people of God and then face the judgment of God? Israel could be the crouching lion here, with the images of the devouring and the bone crunching fitted with a wild animal. In other words, if something is breaking bones to pieces and eating up nations, these adversaries, what sort of animal might come to mind? Well, how about a lion that was stirred up carelessly, stupidly? And here in verse 9, this lion is ready. Now, in chapter 49 of Genesis... The tribe of Judah is compared to a lion. I know I mentioned the second oracle and the third as having this lion language. It goes back earlier and I think it informs what we read here in Numbers. We must recall that in Genesis 49, near the very end of the book, 
Jacob is blessing his sons. And he says of Judah, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Notice the sheer number of phrases repeated. The language about lion and lioness. The question about being roused and who would dare to do so. Language from Genesis 49 about the tribe of Judah. Why would that be an important verse in the background of our passage? Because if you keep reading in Genesis 49... Here's what the next verse says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's Genesis 49.10. In other words, this is an expectation that from the tribe of Judah will come one who will reign. And who will reign not just over the Israelites. But to him will be the obedience of the peoples. This is a coming king who will be raised up From the line of Abraham and the tribe of Judah most specifically. I think think Numbers 24 is is re-stirring the waters of that kind of ancient hope from Genesis. And it's it's helping to sustain it for the readers. God has made a promise that from Judah he's going to bring one who will reign. And even in Numbers 24, Balaam is getting glimpses, glimmers of this. At the end of verse 9 of our passage this morning, blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. Well, this is more evidence that we need to be thinking about Genesis when we're reading this oracle. This is language lifted right from Genesis 12 and Genesis 27 for the biblical author to notice. We have here blessed language and curse language. In Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. God Uh, Isaac blessed Jacob in Genesis 27. He says, Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. When we read in Numbers 24 9, Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you, this is once again the Abrahamic covenant and promises that God will bring to pass on behalf of his people. He is for them like the horns of a wild ox. In the first oracle, Balaam said he couldn't curse those whom God had not cursed. In the second oracle, he admitted that he can't change God's command to bless or God's mind to bless the people. And now he speaks of blessing and cursing together. He says, blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. In other words, he's speaking this language in words that are reminiscent of the patriarchs of old who are proclaiming what God's purposes are. Now, Balak here should recognize something. He doesn't do what I'm going to suggest he should have done. But what Balak should have done is he should have said, if God is going to bless those who bless the Israelites, then I will not oppose them. If God is going to curse those who curse the Israelites, then I will not oppose them. Because I do not want to be in the line against the Lord who is for his people like the horns of a wild ox. I don't want to rouse the lion, if you will, whom God has raised to devour the enemies of Yahweh in judgment that is righteous and just. Balak should say, we will no longer oppose the Israelites. We will bless them. And we will come and submit to the God of Israel. 
Balak doesn't do that. But he should have. Balak should have submitted to the Lord. Balak should have listened to the words of Balaam and said, Well, if this is what Yahweh has proclaimed, this God who has delivered them out of Egyptian bondage, if this is his will for the people, and he says he will bless those who bless you, Israel, then we, the Moabites, will bless them. But he doesn't do that. He should have. In verse 10 through 13, we see his response. Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam. Now, this is the first time we're told with the word that Balak was angry. I think we could imply he was pretty exasperated already. Even earlier in chapter 23, when the first oracle is concluded, Balak says in verse 11, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies. Behold, you've done nothing but bless them. After the second oracle, Balak says, don't curse them at all and don't bless them at all. And now we're told in chapter 2410, Balak's anger is kindled. He is furious. And we know he's furious because he can't keep his hands still. You ever been so angry that your limbs are moving? Here we have in verse 10, he's striking his hands together. He's so upset. He's just clapping right there and he's not happy about it. He's slapping his hands together in anger. It is kindled against Balaam with what is understandable from his perspective as a fury that this prophet from the east hasn't done anything I've asked him to do. Balak says to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies. And behold, you have blessed them these three times. Now, of course, the blessing of the people of God does not reside within Balaam's power. Even the language that Balak is using, you've blessed them these three times. Really what Balaam is doing is reaffirming And saying out loud with confirming words what God has already done to bless Israel. And Balak says, I've called you to curse them. And these three times you've done nothing but bless them. So we've noticed those three times. Balak has wanted Balaam to do something and Balaam has resisted. Back when we were in Numbers 22 several weeks ago. We were in that donkey episode, right? Balaam is riding the donkey. And there are three occasions, not one, not two, not four, but three occasions where Balaam is wanting the donkey to do something and the donkey resists. And it turns out that the donkey does what it does because the donkey can see what the prophet doesn't see. And here we have in these three episodes in Moab, a working out of the earlier Balaam donkey story. In these three events, Balaam is the donkey resisting the urging of the king who is Balak. Over and over again, Balak is wanting Balaam to go one way with his words, but Balaam won't. But that's because God has opened Balaam's eye to see. In other words, Balaam can truly see. And so earlier, Balaam was angered at the donkey, and now Balak is angered at Balaam. Balaam here is the receiver of anger from this king of Moab. It's no light thing to counter and rebuke the plans of a king. That could have tremendous consequences for your immediate health. And here you have Balak, angered and clapping his hands together. I called you to curse my enemies, be old you bless them these three times. He just sends him away in verse 11. Therefore now flee to your own place. You know what that sounds like? Don't even stay the night here, Balaam. What it sounds like to me is you better just start in that direction back home immediately. Flee to your own place. 
I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. I think this is a way of saying, Balaam, I'm taking back my, my blank check that I had extended to you. The Lord has held you back from it, apparently. All this honor that would have been yours, most certainly, it's not yours. So Balaam is to be sent packing, right? Well, not so fast. Numbers 24 doesn't end, even with our passage this morning. More remains. Balaam is told, go ahead and flee. But he doesn't immediately flee. There's more parting words that we'll see next week. Balaam does say in verse 12 to Balak, Didn't I tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that will I speak. Balaam here is reasserting the fact that he must speak what God has given him to say. Balak might say, but here's what I'm going to pay you. But that's not what's most compelling here. Even on the road to Moab, Balaam finally recognized the angel of the Lord who was armed with a sword. Balaam realized that going against the will and words of God was utter folly. And Balaam is reasserting this to Balak saying, I'm not able to go beyond the word of the Lord. Your messengers know this. You know this. What the Lord speaks That I will speak. The reason we're stopping here in verse 13. Is because verse 14 transitions to one further episode. He says and now behold. I'm going to my people. Come. I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. So verse 14 is connected with what is about to happen. Three oracles that we've noticed so far. God is determined to bless his people. His power delivers them. His power has guided them. His presence protects them. He is for them like the horns of the wild ox. They're like a lion that ought to be roused by the enemies of God. People should bless them so that they would be blessed. Not curse them and face the curse of Yahweh. And, and, and they have a king that is to come. One that's reminiscent of those ancient words in Genesis 49 and earlier. The language God gave to Abraham and that Jacob spoke over Judah. And earlier Isaac had said to Jacob as well. Language about kings that will come. And in particular, a long-awaited king who would be born of the woman. The long-awaited king was born of a virgin and was laid in a manger. What you need to know about Numbers 23 is that this, this, this prophecy would ultimately be fulfilled in the coming and kingdom of Christ. He is the one greater than Agag and whose kingdom would be exalted. He is the one who would be the future hope and strength and leader for the people of God. He is the long-awaited king from Numbers 24. I think it's important that in Jesus' ministry, Jesus was also taken to different locations and urged to do what was disobedient. Balaam was tempted by Balak in three locations. And Jesus was tempted not by a Moabite king, but by the devil himself. Balaam brought Balak to three different locations that would end up being, if he followed Balak's instructions, to disobey the Lord. Jesus himself would also face temptations at three locations to disobey the Father. In Matthew 24, the king of Moab was not the one who came to the Son of God. The devil himself comes to Jesus. One temptation, one location chosen. Jesus resists the evil one. Another location and another temptation chosen. Jesus resists the evil one. A third location and a third temptation chosen. Jesus resists the evil one. 
But the evil one doesn't say to Jesus, you flee then and go back to your own place. The evil one flees. Jesus lived without sin. And he lives without sin that he might on the cross bear all our sin. In dying for your sin, he has satisfied the judgment of God for all who trust in him. He is the king. And he is the friend of sinners. Let's go to him. Let's pray.